Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Andrew Jamison, co-founder and CEO of Extend, a digital credit distribution platform that's raised more than $14 million in venture capital. And in this episode, we talk about why Andrew got into entrepreneurship in the first place, something he thought he would never do, discussions on the early days with his co-founders around creating Extend, the go-to-market strategy they used, how he looked at strategic partnerships, bootstrapping in the first six to eight months and then raising venture capital from the likes of Point72 and FinTech Collective, the initial product for Extend, how that has evolved, how Andrew invests in himself as a founder and how the experience compares to what he expected, the unique team happy hours Extend does and why they play different types of games each week, how Andrew views the future of Extend, how he recharges, and much, much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Andrew Jamison, co-founder and CEO of Extend. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show, Justin. Excited. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And for people who aren't familiar with Extend, can you tell us a little bit about what this company is doing? Absolutely. So we are building out uh, a digital payment infrastructure, which is obviously fairly apropos given today's environment, um, <laughs> with associated right digital experiences uh, actually for trusted financial institutions and their customers. With Extend as well, then, I understand what you're doing now. I'm doing some research on this company. You were not a founder previously, it looks like. How did you decide to start Extend? Actually, I swore I would never be a founder. Is, uh, is the actual reality of the situation. Uh, and that's actually because my father uh, was a serial entrepreneur in a completely different field. Uh, and that was in, in, a, in a glamorous world of shop fitting equipment. So shelving for, for supermarkets and hypermarkets in, in France. Um, and so I saw what it took. Uh, and frankly, I, I had no appetite for it. I saw my uncle in the meantime, being very successful in large corporate and working at, in a pharmaceutical company uh, and doing and doing exceptionally well, so I I thought that was my path. Uh, so that's that's where I thought I was going to end up, and it's where I was for a long time. From that, then, why did you decide to end up starting Extend, going from that corporate path to the path you swore to never go down? Uh, I, look, I think like many of these things, either you're 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 really young and uh, and you have an appreciation for taking risk uh, because there's there's no other things in your life that would prevent you, right? Uh, there's no life changing events that would prevent you from taking those risks. Uh, and there's always a feeling you can catch yourself up. I think in my case, it was a little bit different. Uh, I spent the first 10 years of my life having uh, chosen not to join a strategic consulting company and instead join a smaller company of 50 employees really focused on, on SAP. Um, and really, I, I had the, the privilege in a way of, of experiencing really rapid growth from 50 to 700 over five years in a completely organic fashion. So I, I kind of, we were in that tech world, right? Where sort of tech became, to some extent, a little bit sexy. It's, it's difficult to think that SAP is sexy, but <laughs> it allowed people with a business mind to start using technology in, in really an, in, an easier way. Um, and then I sort of uh, realized that I, I maybe wanted to broaden out my career and, and own something rather than being a consultant. And that's when I joined American Express, where I spent the best part of 12 years. Um, and I had the privilege there of, of we, we made an acquisition of a company that, that quite frankly, didn't necessarily pan out. But what I was tasked with was to sort of uh, 
to, to strip out what are the assets we could continue to use and how could we build a business? And we did just that, right? Out of the ashes of this acquisition, we built out a business that was processing $15 billion in payments. And so I got a flavor of what it was like to really be an entrepreneur because we were given all the tools, right, from technology folks to business strategists to really do it as a small business uh, unit on our own. And, and that really gave me a flavor for what it's like actually to, to be an entrepreneur in this world. I, I will say that that in itself was probably not enough uh, yeah. to, to make me tip into the other scale. And this was where I go back to sort of risks uh, and, and what prompts those risks. Uh, and for me, it was, a, look, it was very personal. And I, and I say this to, to anybody who asks, right, is I actually left American Express because of my mother's health. Um, she uh, had been a long-term uh, cancer survivor and had survived for 35 years, but her doctor was a, was a phenomenally close friend of ours. And she called up and said, look, this is it. And your mother was meant to have passed 12 years ago, but but it is going to happen this time around. Um, and so I, I sort of had suddenly had, had more important things to do than really to focus on work. And look, I'm very fortunate. My, my wife has a great job. Uh, and so I could afford to take time out. And that's what I did. I went back uh, to Europe and went back and forth. Um, and, and sure enough, things developed as, as was, um, as was predicted, but that was a real wake up moment for me. Um, in terms of, yes, I had a young family, uh, but it was a a wake up call in terms of, wow, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is a life we live, uh, and, and we really need to make the most of it. And so we really need to center ourselves on doing things that we really, really enjoy. Uh, and if we do that, my sense was always, one would be successful. And uh, between that and a fateful barbecue, where uh, actually one of my two co-founders, Dan and I, talked about this potential opportunity, that kind of became the trigger point of saying, "Let's go and do this, right?" <laughs> um, and and here we are, you know, coming up to some, I'd say, four years later, uh, essentially having gone through our Series A, and obviously, obviously now we'll continue to to look to grow and raise a Series B sometime in in uh, in the spring, summer of next year. With that as well, at that faithful barbecue, uh, what are some of those things that you guys discussed though? Because for other founders listening, you know, talking to potential co-founders, thinking of going after their ideas, whether they're at a company or they're they're just already kind of early in on their own company. I mean, what were some of those things you were discussing in those early days that made you decide on this particular company? So I think for me, it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people. It's look, ideas are increasingly cheap today. And so everything's about execution. Uh, and the quality of your execution uh, and the depth of your thinking is an essential part of it. Uh, but until you can actually get something in, into market and, and adopted, right, it's just an idea. Yeah. And so the reason why I mentioned the Faithful, Faithful Barbecue is, is my co-founder, Danny, was, um, was someone who's been a very close friend of my wife's and mine here in New York City for, for many, many years, well over 15 years for me and 20 odd years for my wife. Uh, and he was an out-and-out technologist, started out as a designer uh, in, a t- in a technology sense of designing websites uh, and user experiences with some pretty marquee brands. Um, and I had sort of more of the fundamental understanding of payments, specifically around card payments. Uh, and as I sat there and, and we looked at each other in the eye, we said, okay, now I understand how fintech is made up, right? You need you need some skills in both. Um and I certainly felt that having someone as close as Danny, someone I trusted uh, inherently, really would give us a, an advantage in the marketplace because we had the two key components to be successful, right? Yep. Uh, and, and really the reason why uh, Guillaume came into the equation was 
he gave the third leg to the stool that gave it stability, which is a, a thorough, thorough focus on execution, right? He is maniacally focused on execution. And so it was understanding the industry, knowing you could build it, but also being confident that you could execute. And so between the three of us, right, which came together in the back end of 2016, we realized that we had what was needed to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace relative to 22, 25, 27 year olds who were fresh, essentially in their aspirations. Because yeah. we had experience, relationships, know-how that we felt were the right tools that we would need to grow a company and build a company for that matter. And on that note then, with that team established that obviously seemed like the perfect fit in many ways, what was the go-to-market strategy for you guys early on? So our our vision of the world was was not that we needed to go and disrupt the whole world, right? And I know so much of, of what folks out there are doing is, is really impressive, right? They really go out and truly disrupt the world. What we realized was there was a growing number of new uh, credit card issuers, more digital issuers starting to, to come into the market, right? And that's only accelerated, right? You have new players like Brex and Divi and Ramp who've come into the marketplace. And what we realized was they were really starting to take away market share from traditional issuers, right? The likes of American Express, the likes of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and some of these sort of smaller uh, bank partners as well. And so what I got to realize was actually what was broken was not the credit card. What was broken was the digital tools that traditional banks had. And so unlike the others I just mentioned, we didn't go out to disrupt the industry. We actually went after and realized that we would rather enable these traditional issuers with digital capabilities to allow them to do digital card distribution, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, be in the market of cross-selling rather than building a brand from the ground up, which we knew would be really expensive. And we also found that there really wasn't anyone in the marketplace doing that. And so provided we could build the right relationships with some key and, and strategic partners, we could actually be very differentiated in the marketplace. On that note, how did you decide on which partners and how did you go about building those relationships? Because I imagine it was... I mean, it could have been challenging. You had, a, you had a background in it, so that seemed, could be an advantage there. But how did you go about that in the early days then establishing that when you're just getting started? So we recognized that we would not be successful if uh, along our journey, we were going to force either the credit card networks or the credit card issuers to do any technology changes on their side. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just the reality, right? Yeah. Big companies, big brands to, to essentially uh, secure. And so they're not going to be as nimble. The question was, could we understand their ecosystem? Could we figure out what APIs are out there? Could we bring those APIs together and start to, to build out new services really on their behalf? Uh, and so the answer we came to very quickly was absolutely. And so our strategic partners in this world of digital credit cards and distribution were very quickly the, uh, the card networks and the card processors on the background who built technology on behalf of banks. And so that's essentially the key partners that we saw. And we knew we'd have to build this baseline infrastructure before we were really relevant to the issuing community. And so that's what we really did over the course of the first 18 months, 24 months of the company was, uh, to your point, we built, we leveraged all and any relationship that we had. <laughs> right? Of many people, and, and Guillaume and I were both at Amex for 12 years. So 
a lot of folks had moved on from Amex to take on very senior positions across different companies. And so that was our unfair advantage, right? Our unfair advantage was we knew the industry. We were a trusted force in the industry. And so we were able to punch above our weight in getting meetings, in essentially uh, laying out a strategy of what we wanted to do and for them to adopt it and embrace it. Uh, and so that's really what we what we took full advantage of in, in the early years, because we knew then once we had the process of discussions moving, the network issuer processing discussions, they would ultimately help us with our sale to those issuers. Yeah, the unfair advantage, as you mentioned, obviously it's something that every startup is trying to find or you ideally want to have, if you're going to have success, like what is that unfair advantage you have? And clearly you had that with this then. In that process of growing this company, you mentioned the 18 to 24 months of building the building this actually so you can have this for the customers. How did you fund the business? How did the fundraising side of things go early on? So look, I think it's fair to say that the first of six, eight months were really bootstrapped. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, look, and now I, I have a better appreciation of why investors want you to bootstrap, right? Which is showing a degree of commitment. Yeah. And then I also have an hour an appreciation of why they want a friends and family round because they want to know that people in your inner circle are willing to back you as people who know you and trust you. And so we, we essentially uh, started off our journey in, in 2016 and, and we went to a couple of conferences. I spoke to a couple of, of uh, venture capitalists uh, and that's really what set us up to then say, okay, who should be the first bank partner we should talk to? Uh, and then uh, start essentially our journey of, uh, of getting that initial bit of funding from friends and family, which happened uh, in the sort of April timeframe of 2017. And that was because we now knew we'd have to build things and pay people to do things. And we're like, okay, we, we've, we're investing a lot ourselves, right? We've given up some pretty high paying jobs inside of these uh, financial institutions. And in Danny's case, right, in, with his own uh, consultancy practice and, and business. But we felt like actually we need to share the burden of this journey a little bit with, with the key trusted individuals. And so that's what we did. We brought in a round of, of 10 individuals, friends and family, raised uh, $250,000. And the idea was that should be enough to essentially allow us to build the infrastructure to then convince the venture capital community that we were worth a bet, right? As people who yeah. never founded a company, but actually had gone and built and designed something that actually worked um, and had and had received some funding from some of our trusted resources. And, and that's precisely what we did. We came with a working product, right, to the venture capital community. In fact, we sent them a virtual card ahead of time and said, go shopping, right? And they went to the Home Depot, they went to all these different places to prove that these cards we'd sent them in a second were actually could could be used in real time. Uh, and then when we turned up, we typically turned up with something we'd bought very close to, to their offices through one of these digital cards that we had, right? It's just another reminder of it's very, very usable and very scalable. On that as well, with, with that early on, those early days, obviously you got something in their hands. Tell me more about the product at that time. I'm sure it's evolved potentially to today in terms of what it looks like or what features and everything you have. But at that time, tell me more about the product back then. Yeah. So, so back then, again, it goes back to relationships, right? We had managed to get a discussion up and running with Silicon Valley Bank and their product team. And they had agreed to give us access to a set of APIs that actually got us in the back door uh, in terms of accessing the technology we knew we'd ultimately need with MasterCard in this particular case in point. Yeah, And so we very quickly coded to those APIs uh, and created our own accounts inside of SVB. 
And really within a matter of, of eight weeks, we had a working prototype with clickable screens, right? We'd gone from uh, really some really basic outlines on a piece of paper to a functional uh, prototype, which obviously we'd find uh, you know, a million flaws with it as, as the journey went on. Um, <laughs> but, but actually we were there, actually it, this worked, right? I could generate a card and send you a card and you'd be able to use it you know, within, within a couple of minutes. And that was key, right? Once we'd proven that piece, then it was about, well, how big is that market? Uh, and and what areas are you going to focus in on? Having the product, the initial product, having the friends and family, obviously, that helped you get to that point even then, the institutional capital. Raising institutional capital is obviously a bit different uh, than your early, early, early funding because you're now convincing people who are professional investors. How did that go? I know you, you mentioned raising a Series A already, looking towards a Series B next year potentially, but you also raised you know, $3 million Series uh, a seed round in 2018. How did that institutional raise go for you as being someone as a first-time founder? So look, it's really hard, right? And this is this is when you you realize that uh, that it's a totally different it's a it's a game in its own right, raising yeah. raising funds, right? It's it's an art. It's not I don't even think it's really a science, right? It's fine if you have the numbers that, that back everything up, but at this early stage, it's it's rarely about about the science, it's about the art of fundraising. Um and, and it is a very different uh, skill set. And some people are just exceptionally good at just doing that. Um, yeah. I think in our case, right, it was a little bit different. We, we had been used to go beg, borrow, steal in front of senior executives at Amex of why our projects needed to be funded this year, not next year, and, uh, and, and sort of had some pretty compelling messages for those executives where they'd funded us. But again, these were people we knew. We understood the machines and, and, and how that machine worked. And so we found it pretty tough, uh, actually, in terms of how we needed to, to engage, what was the message we need to have, right? What were the what were the core components of any story we were going to tell? There's only so much you can get off the <laughs> internet, right? Which yeah. gives you a damn good Kickstarter, and then the reality yep. dawns. Um, <laughs> and and the first the first uh, investment pitch we made actually was with QED, which was literally a train wreck. Um, <laughs> And and on so many levels, right? We were we looked at the, myself and Guillaume looked at each other and said, "You realize if we'd done this kind of a job inside of American Express, we would have been fired." <laughs> um, but again, it's like everything you you get a setback and, and you react to it, uh, yeah. and that and that defines uh, you as individuals. And and frankly, we sat there and we we realized it wasn't good enough. Um, and part of it was because we changed our story to adapt to the investor and and. And we and we really went around this, also tiptoeing, thinking that they knew an awful lot about the card industry, given that the the roots in Capital One, but actually because we were dealing in commercial credit, they didn't know half the people we knew. They didn't know specifically how credit cards were really being used uh, to the level of detail we knew. And and I didn't think we went in there uh, and and really projected that confidence when actually we had all the tools there to to make it happen. And I think that's what really. Uh, brought it to life for us when we started mentioning a few names and they were like, we have no idea who you're talking about. And we suddenly realized, well, actually, we do. Um, <laughs> and so we used that as, as a jumping off point uh, and quickly got ourselves into much better conversations. Uh, and, and eventually, right, in, in uh, October of 2017, actually, we then had Point72 agree to lead the round, uh, the $3 million round, and, and they led with a $1 million investment. With them as well, with Point72, uh, a lot of times you have different options for investors, potentially, if you get to that point and you're fortunate enough. How did they end up being your lead investor? So I, I like to look at it in terms of 
in the same way as when you're working in a big company, right? You know you want to be able to step in a room and provide an update, uh, and and you know you're going to have uh, people in that room around that table who are going to be inquisitive, who are going to be uh, proactive, pragmatic, uh, and and really uh, and and really sort of be there to sort of push the envelope more in terms of have have you really understand this? Rather, I'm trying to outsmart you. Yeah. Um, and and I, I was really really impressed, right, with with a team there in terms of um, uh, trip. Shriner and Pete Casella, uh, and Trip was was originally the guy who led it, and he had some gr- really insightful questions, and and frankly also some great advice uh, for us as we were having these discussions and getting into more and more depth, and and it was just very clear that he had a really uh, good head on his shoulders, and and I really re- believed right there and then at that very early instance that good good news bad news right as long as we tackled this uh, as as a unit, we would find a solution to solving the problems. And I think that's so important when you think of your investors is you can't define your investors from the good days. You have to define your investors in the bad days. And you've yeah. got to know that in the bad days, they are going to be in your corner, keeping you honest, right? <laughs> but, but actually also sitting there and truly brainstorming with you and, and not trying to get essentially to outsmart you along the way. Yeah, and a number of founders I've had in this show have mentioned this, but uh, doing your research on the investors by talking to their portfolio company CEOs, getting you know, do your own due diligence on your investors can be really helpful as well. Again, understanding for how they are, like you mentioned, in the worst of times as well, uh, because you're going to be, like you're not, stuck with these people for a long time. So it's making sure you have the right ones is obviously important. And just to kind of close the, the loop on the funding side, there's a big difference from seed to series A. Take me through the Series A, how that went for you guys. So yeah, no, this is a big, it is a big leap, right? And because essentially you're starting to have to really show product market fit and, and real traction, right? From just a concept, which is what seed typically is. Especially when you're building infrastructure, things take a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, but again, for us, look, point seventy two were, were extremely helpful. The irony uh, for me in the Series A is we had actually presented to the co-lead for our Series A in our seed. Uh, and that was FinTech Collective based in, in New York City. Um, and, and I'll never let them forget this, obviously. Um, but, but Gareth and Brooks over there uh, uh, really had sort of met us. And I think just before we went to see them for our seed investment, they'd had an investment with a former Amex person go sideways. Um, and so they were like, what, what do you guys really know about starting a business? Um, and, and so they were fairly dismissive. Uh, and obviously, we left fairly dejected from that meeting. And, and obviously, there's more dejected meetings than there are happy meetings. <laughs> yeah. anyway. um, but uh, but then when we came back and said to them, like, you know, we'd shown you this concept with, with essentially an integration with SVB and plans for doing other things. And they saw the uh, the actual deliverables and the milestones we'd reached in that 18-month period. They were very much back at the table. Um, and, and you would have thought, okay, I, I don't want to, I want to discard these individuals, right? Cause the first interaction wasn't great. Uh, but again, right. It's, it's all about, uh, you know, making sure you, you, you understand those individuals, you understand where they came from and you build that trust. And we built a trust exceptionally quickly, um, with, uh, with the team over there. And our feeling was they were very differentiated from point 72, which is more research focused, right. And analytical, and suddenly we had in front of us, right, uh, two individuals who were really operationally minded, 
yeah. right? who had been in, in the game themselves. Uh, and, and if you look at the, the, the personalities also of Gareth and, and Brooks, very, very different. Um, and we really felt also with Gareth, he would give us that extra kick and leg up on the business development side of things. Uh, because he had he had connections in the industry that even though we came out of financial services, that that were really meaningful, uh, and and he really put himself uh, put himself forwards there to help us out uh, and get us essentially to to the next increment. So we felt very comfortable again as a boardroom that we would be in a really really good place uh, with those two essentially co leading our, our Series A. Yeah, and along the way then, so building this company, you mentioned already with kind of getting your first initial customers, oftentimes that's a much different story than when you're scaling, when you've gotten to Series A and beyond. I mean, it's a whole different ballgame. Take me through the growth side, going from those first customers to beyond and how you think about growth for Extend now. Yeah, so I think, you know, as I mentioned at the, at the top of the call, right, we were initially perceived as providing a user experience, a mobile app. Yeah. And I, and I think... You know, as we've continued uh, with our discussions and we've really started to to zero in on, on the role that we play in providing a broader technology platform, right, in collaboration with processors so that the issuers can essentially advance, right, their innovations and bring them to market sooner, faster, to compete more effectively. Um, what we realized was the next thing we had to solve for in that journey was, well, it's all well and good, but actually selling into banks takes a long time. Right. And a lot of that takes is the time is taken because you're going through a lot of due diligence as you're being onboarded. Right. Yeah. And it can range six months all the way through to two years. Um, <laughs> uh, exactly. And, and you know how funding cycles go in this game. Right? Yeah. Two years is you're out of cash. Um, so, so we quickly realized that we uh, had to build essentially a, a better way of, of being relevant to these banks. And so that's what we've been doing in parallel. We've essentially just agreed uh, with MasterCard to become one of their vendors, which will allow now MasterCard to contract directly with banks on their paper. And that means, in effect, right, we are selling now through MasterCard, which is already an approved vendor for all of these issuers, for many of these, uh, these different issuers. And so that's a, that's a path to acceleration. Right. In terms of we can now get down to the broad tax of saying technology is not an issue. Vendor onboarding is not an issue. Now, all we have to focus on is go to market. So that's what we're leveraging. And we'll announce three new issuing partners, uh, likely before the end of this year, uh, on the back of, of having just agreed on, on that onboarding strategy. So that's one of the components. The other component is, is over the summer, uh, TSIS that does the issuance right for uh 80, 90% right, of, of the bigger banks here in, in the US agreed that essentially we would become their tokenization provider for commercial issuers. And what, what does that mean? Well, it's a simple idea of I could actually just press a button on the screen and load that digital card inside of my digital wallet, the Apple mm -hmm. Pay, the Android Pays, et cetera. And so they gave us essentially the keys to that, uh, to that domain. And so we've now essentially been able to build those uh, capabilities out and build more services. Uh, and then the last one, uh, and this is relevant, I think, to, to everybody uh, probably listening here is I, I, it took me three years to understand the magic source of, of, uh, of what makes startups successful. And yeah. I thought originally it was, it was a brilliant idea, well executed. But actually, when you think of the Brex and Divis, right, they rethought underwriting 
uh, and, and how essentially people could use their cash on hand as a source of underwriting, which was actually very clever. Repeatable, though, that's that's the thing that they'll have to defend against, right? Because the issue is already thinking that way. Um, <laughs> but actually, what I what I then realized was actually the secret source, more than anything else, is the simplicity of onboarding, right? How quickly can I, as a customer, see something, hear something, and actually go and use your tool? Um and that's one of the things that, that took a while for me to realize. And, and we just launched with one of our issuing partners uh, at the back end of, of Labor Day. And really what we've seen is a tremendous ramp, right? First month, we had 50 customers. Second month, we had 100 incremental customers, right? And then the volumes went from 4 million uh, the first month, 17 million the second month. We expect 30 million in the third month. Jeez. So you suddenly see a rapid trajectory to becoming really a pipeline for that issuer of a billion dollars. With that as well, Andrew, you mentioned that being an insight that took a while to to get to with the simplicity of onboarding. I mean, what was it that really helped that click for you? Just seeing it over and over again and be like, oh, this is the issue. I'm just curious as to more how you got to that point. So I, I think for us, it was about, um, to some, some degree, right? I'd been indoctrinated into the way things were done in the past. Yeah. Uh, and I'd come from enterprise, right? Whether it's, whether it's you're dealing with SAP, or I was dealing, you know, with a portfolio of companies I was dealing with at American Express with our B two B products. We're servicing mostly enterprise clients, so I didn't really have an appreciation for what that consumer like experience was, and what the what the the benefits were of being viral, right? And so what we realized was, well, actually, if an issuer has six million cards out there already with with their customers, imagine a world where that one of those six million cards could be your activation point. Hmm. I'm no longer having to send in a salesperson and say, hey, you need this product. You've already got it. And so I'm now saying, haha, but that product now has some pretty nifty new features, right? And from that very product, you can now essentially create digital accounts that you can send to those people within your own network. And so suddenly you have this network of network effect. And so you really start to see the real opportunity unfolding. And And it took that understanding of if you can activate through something that's already there and make it happen in five minutes, right? You are in, in, a, in a very different place than if I'm having to do a hard sell to you, right? And essentially get a contract in front of you and then have you essentially be onboarded or implemented and potentially have to do a digital integration. And, you know, it's like this never ending cycle where before you know it, yet again, you run out of money. Um, yeah, that whole thing. <laughs> but that's, that was really the epiphany for me, um, which which really sort of blindsided me a little bit, and and I'm and I'm glad I got there eventually. Did you did you get to that point of discovering that before the Series A? No, actually, it was it was really uh, post Series A, uh, and so really what that's done is it sort of enabled us to really think about how exponential the growth could be based on the number of cards that are already out in the marketplace uh, from an acquisition standpoint. So again. Uh, it is something that really helps us to gain traction as you go to a series B because, because your metrics just become so much more important. Yeah. And I was talking to someone, I'm trying to think who it was recently. It might've been, um, I forget which one. There's a couple that recently I've had, I want to maybe Dion from forethought, um, but talking about how at different levels, whether it be series A, series B, there's a certain culture and expectation. That's pretty much the same around each, uh, each one. It's obviously different for each one, but you're expected to hit. And so having an idea of what those metrics are going to be, obviously you can have an idea of if you're ready for that round or not. And, and for that thing, 
that's interesting that you mentioned you've discovered after the series a because then it makes me think well you got to the series a even without that that insight which is only helpful in terms of you know optimistic you looking for the future then uh beyond and now, now having that insight and understanding what that takes from there then you obviously are trending towards the series b next year made a lot of progress for this and you're a first time founder has entrepreneurship for you been what you expected uh, absolutely and more both on the pain side and on and on the gain side um <laughs> just because you never quite know right what you're waking up to in the morning right and and any small bit of news can can really impact right you on a, a on any given day and uh and I, I didn't realize quite how resilient right founders have to be i am very glad i chose to go down this journey with two co-founders yeah. I have absolute admiration for individuals that go it alone because I already know, given that, that we spread the the love between the three of us, right, how much there is to be done uh, and how much needs to be done, um, that that I, uh, I I have nothing but, but absolute admiration for, for sole founders in this game. Um, because, um, but at the same time, right, the adrenaline rush, uh, at, you know, in terms of having a positive piece of news is is quite is, is nothing like you've ever experienced before. Uh, and and I think from from me, it goes back to why did I set up this company and why did I choose this path? I went down this path because I'd always loved being in front of customers, right, understanding the challenges they had and just trying to figure out a better way of doing it. Um, and I'd done it within the large companies. Um, but I really sort of felt like actually I wanted to, to take it to the next level, which is I just wanted to be I wanted it to be what I did. Yeah. Right? I, I was less interested in pursuing the career to some extent that I was signing up for, which was a more political career. As you grow inside a company, right, the actions of you doing uh, really, really diminish. And it's really about there's a lot more position that needs to happen. There's a lot more repetition happening because there's so many more stakeholders. Right. The beauty of being in a startup is you do get to make decisions really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, and many of them are wrong, but it's okay, right? You can, <laughs> you can change tact and, and retool and go, but you have to be able to make some pretty quick and sometimes brutal decisions. Uh, because again, it goes back to, we have 18 month cycles, right? Typically. And so we have to be fast uh, and, and we have to embrace that. For you, I mean, a lot of companies will not raise venture capital. And then obviously even smaller amount of them will ever get to even a series A and beyond. First time founder getting to that point, had a lot of success with this this company. What's helped you most though as a CEO in terms of investing in yourself, learning and growing? What types of things have helped you to get to this point, Andrew? Well, I think also I, I set out to build a business, right? I, I really did not set out to, to, to sort of like, you know, go after necessarily venture uh, or, or that was not really for me the primary goal. The primary goal was for me to say, could I stand up a business? Um, could could we make money? Could we certainly, in the first instance, make enough money to pay for all the salaries of all these people who've who've taken a risk on this company? Yeah. Um, and that was that was always our primary goal. And so we were pretty good stewards of capital. And I think being a good steward of capital has, has been really important. Uh, and I think certainly we learned some of those skills from large enterprise, right, where you have to deliver what you committed to. And so you are constantly looking at your budgets. You're constantly looking right at, at how you're using your money. Is it the most effective way? Is it delivering the growth that you need? And so you get a lot of discipline, right? From big companies. 
Uh, and I think that discipline has, has, has carried through to, to really what we do here. So I think that's really helped. Um, I think the other important thing is, is acknowledging the importance of delegation, right? It's, I couldn't possibly do uh, all of the things that need to be done in a given day. And, and therefore, I have to rely on people. Um, and, and I have to give people uh, uh, really m- more power than I would typically have been comfortable with inside of a large company, because typically they have bigger teams, et cetera, et cetera, the, the whole support crew that comes with it. Right. Um, and I think that, that in itself has been very rewarding because you start to see actually people can grow. If you give people the opportunities, they really can grow into roles. Uh, and to some extent, often we keep a lid on people longer than we should. And, and I think that's why a lot of people get frustrated and, and leave. So for me, the, the idea of, of, of being committed to delegate uh, has been really key. And that in its own right has, has really forced me to be very transparent with the team, right, around what it is we're trying to achieve, why we're building certain things, right? What are the next two quarters um, focuses uh, and, and why we may be changing uh, that we were building this before and now we're having to build these other components because we have a client in front of us that will pay us money. Right. And so we'll get to the other things if they're still relevant down the road. Yeah. But again, just, just essentially being grounded in, in that kind of philosophy, I think has been, has been super helpful. On a similar note of the, the team, how has your relationship or kind of communication between your co-founders evolved from you know, the early days you're just getting started, not many people, to evolving you know, years later, raise more capital? How's that communication and that relationship gone with you and your, your co-founders? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, I obviously knew Danny as a friend first, but I'd actually yep. seen him. I'd brought him in to do a, a piece of work for us at American Express. And, and so I'd actually seen him in a professional context. Um, and ultimately, look, it boils down to trust. Trust is at the heart of so many things we do, right? With essentially ourselves as co-founders, uh, with our employees, with our investors. And so cultivating, right, those elements of trust for me has, has really allowed us to to really have a fairly steady ship in terms of our relationship. We hold each other uh, furiously accountable, right, to the things that we commit to doing. Um, but we're also very supportive because we know that at any given point in time, we may not have bandwidth to be able to do all the things that we need to do. And so we we, we do provide that support, right? It's, it's like you give a little bit the carrot, a little bit the stick. Um, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I put that on myself and I put it on them, right? We have a very open uh discussion forums you know within the different tools that we use like slack uh and and essentially now with with covid right we meet every monday uh essentially religiously for 45 minutes to go through the state of the business the volumes that we're seeing where we are with with different contracts to make sure everyone's grounded in in the mission uh at the same time on on thursdays we now have team happy hours which really help bring the team together and and here we are 30 something weeks right into covid <laughs> um, and we have yet to play the same game twice on a Thursday afternoon, um, which makes me realize I should we should actually be writing a book about this because I'm pretty <laughs> sure we sell that book for for a decent amount of money. And maybe yeah. that's an adventure. Wait a minute, back up. Like, what are you what are you doing on these Thursdays? Tell me more about this. So we we've realized right <clears throat> that we're all sort of tethered to our computers because many people are working from home, and so we needed a lighter hearted thing to do, and so we as three different leaders with three different teams, right? We split up every every Thursday. Every team member has to pull together a game that we will play over uh, over Zoom mm-hmm. uh, that involves essentially all the teams. Sometimes we're playing as a team. Sometimes we're playing as individuals. 
and essentially we will we will scour the internet for any types of games that we can find right clearly we've at some point we played charades um and done all sorts of different mining games but actually what we found to be the most effective games is when we engage with with actually the audience so one of the funniest ones we did was everyone had to take a picture of the inside of their fridge um, and then we had to decide whose fridge it was um and so you just get to know people um uh, you know another one we did was a treasure hunt where you had to bring certain things and people brought things from their houses and so we got to know like you know some items that they had in their house and so you get to know the team even though we're all remote you're talking about things that that are yours and personal and therefore we stories come up and and relationships develop I love that. That's amazing. I think it's a, it's something that's so needed, especially because everyone is remote. Not everyone. Almost everyone is remote. Many people are remote. It needs something to kind of feel that camaraderie and when you are separated. And that's such a great example. That's why I wanted to know uh, one or two of those, which is great. And and for you as well, then, with this kind of current environment we're in and with the craziness that can be this pandemic and having family and everything else, how do you recharge uh, for me, it's pretty simple. It's it's all about the great outdoors, right? We we do live in in Manhattan in New York City, um, so so that space was somewhat restricted. Um, so so look, we we started off by by renting a car, and and look, I love hiking. Um, I, I'll do it. I'll do it till the cows come home. So so I'm very happy, uh, and I feel sorry for my poor kids who are nine and and five and a half, because um, even my five and a half year old has been hiking on an eight mile hike. Uh, multiple times since the spring and uh and look it's it's been great right it brings me back to my childhood of going for walks with my parents my grandparents and we had less technology to rely on and, and i think it's healthy right i'm so glad given the fact that they themselves are tethered to technology for remote learning to get them out there and to discover nature right we, we're sort of hiking and we come across a couple of snakes and frogs and, <laughs> and all sorts of different things right where i'm like oh hello um <laughs> So, but it's fun. So, so for me, it is the outdoors, and I've always enjoyed sport. Uh, I, I grew up playing rugby uh, as a team sport, and then and then sort of ended up playing more individual sports like golf and tennis and, and and those kind of things. But again, those just take up a lot of time, and it's difficult. But but actually, we found that you know between cycling and hiking, we get a really good dose uh, of fresh air, and I find fresh air allows me, and always has actually, enabled me to to disconnect from work uh, and to think about other things. Yeah, getting outside in the nature, that's just a simple, easy way to kind of get away from everything. And I think you need it on a daily basis or a frequent basis, I should say, uh, especially given the kind of current situation we're in as well. And have there been any particular books that have been impactful for you, Andrew? So this is this is why I have to fess up. Um, I haven't read a book since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's largely a little bit because... Um, you know, between the kids' education and all the different things we've been doing with the business, I, I, I've really struggled to actually focus on that. I read the paper uh, pretty furiously. I'm a big a reader of the Financial Times every day. Um, so that's what I read. Uh, and I still use the paper version um, <laughs> because I just enjoy having that paper in my hands and being able yeah. to move through it. Um, so that's that's where I get sort of my reading. And, and I'd rather read that than, than read a lot of the digital sources uh, online. Um just because again, it's 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 a little bit like a discipline. It's it's a little bit like doing mental yoga uh, for myself in terms of just uh, having a routine that I go through, and and that's one of the one of the things I like to do uh, to keep my finger on the pulse uh, of of what's going on. So 
I've not been good. I, I will say that my wife is the exact opposite. She's gone totally digital and she's <laughs> listens to podcasts left, right and center. And she makes me listen to bits and bobs here and there. And uh, and that's about as far as I've gone, right, to, to the digital world. Um, and so, so yeah, but that's that's something which uh, which I think will change, right? Once I think I come out of this and I start commuting again, I had started to go uh, to listen to different things when I was commuting. Uh, because I found that to be also quite quite a good use of time, um, and I think that that was uh, that was something which I enjoyed uh, looking at. So I did, you know, I was looking at Bank on It as a podcast, as something I was I was looking at. Uh, then I was also listening to Desert Island Discs from BBC Radio Four, again very, very British, <laughs> um, uh, and I'd listened to, to Planet Money uh, as well. Was another one. That essentially that I'd started to to go and, and and listen to. So those are some of the things that we that, that I'd started looking at. A lot of it was work related, obviously, um, but that's why I also enjoyed Desert Island Discs because it was it's very different. Yeah, and and just to bring things back uh, full circle here, Extend. What is the the big vision? What are you really trying to accomplish in the end with Extend? I think for me, it's look as I mentioned, right. My number one goal is to keep it simple. And to keep it simple means, right, is is to drive towards having a standalone business, right, is not to be overly reliant on venture capital, private equity. Um, because my philosophy is simple, right, I, I is I, I love what I do, right? Guillaume loves what he's doing. So does Danny and the team does, right? We, we continually check in with everybody and, and it's been a really great culture that's been developing. And so for me, look, my number one task is let's get this business into a profitable state. That will then open up plenty of avenues and channels, right? Um, we do know that at some point, if we want to accelerate growth, right, we will continue down the path of venture capital and eventually private equity, right, if it opens up. Um, so I'm, I'm a realist, right, in terms of the things we're going to need to, to grow the business. But first and foremost, right, it's got to be a, it's got to be a viable business. And the sooner we make that happen, right, the, and the better position will be as we have these discussions with, with venture capital and private equity. What I, what I see is, for me, is is a massive opportunity, right? To really go and rethink, right? How uh, in this initial phase, right? How we can retool the financial service industry, how we can make card accessible to freelancers, to contractors, right? As, as and when they start traveling again, how we can provide simple payment solutions to folks in accounts payable departments that today can't rely on checks because they can't go in the office yeah. anymore. Uh, and to really double down on on use cases of companies trying desperately to pay suppliers, right, or helping companies to figure out when they have pass through bills that this expense belong to a specific customer. Um, so again, that's that's kind of where we will continue uh, to to drive the business. And I think there's a bigger opportunity still out there when you start to think that we start to aggregate APIs across multiple networks multiple processors, and we start to then feed that ecosystem of the number of banks we service, right, then we truly have a gateway, a gateway through which we can send cards, we can authenticate individuals, we can tokenize those cards into wallets, we can pull in more data to help people do a better job on reconciliation, we can ensure that sanctions and sanction screening is happening, and we start to vet these individuals. So again, it's, it's really about pulling in all these services to then really scale the business uh, by really enabling other innovators. Yeah. Right? 
because if we're linked to the to the financial services ecosystem and we then have one pipe through which they can access any number of banks right the sky's the limit of what these innovators will do out there with these different APIs right and so our, our vision here for me was always for us to be intel inside right helping to pull these different things together and therefore enabling other services on on the back end Andrew, where can people go to learn more about Extend and connect with you as well? So, uh, so look, we we are always available on our on our website, paywithextend.com. Um, so that's one of the uh, areas people can go to. Uh, and obviously, look, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, uh, and so there they can find me uh, just by looking up my name, Andrew Jamison. Uh, those are the two main areas uh, where where people come and find us. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. No, Justin, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. It's been a great, great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.